Well, hello, everyone. My name is William Ajay, and I'm pleased to be here, very honored to talk to uh, Dr. Theon Hill, who is an associate professor of communication at Wheaton College. Uh, Dr. Hill has a long and storied history uh, in both academic and practical world work at the intersection of rhetoric, justice, faith, and a couple of other uh, intersections. So this is uh, just an open conversation. Dr. Hill, welcome to the, the discussion. Thank you so much, Brother William. It's a blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, thank you. And I'm looking forward to it. If we could start off by hearing a little bit about your story, um, about yourself, your name, where you started, what your, uh, you know, what's led you to where you are now, what your focus is today. Yeah, so I, I come to you as the product of uh, Kendall and Charlotte Hill, my parents, who um, they were uh, believers, they loved Jesus dearly, but they were Christians who believed that their faith should mean something in the society in which they lived. So they raised me and my siblings to believe that the gospel has implications for issues like poverty, issues like justice, issues like um, inequality. My father was a criminal defense attorney in Chicago for uh, over three decades. My mother was a public school teacher. For, so both in the education system and in the criminal justice system, they sought to live out their faith um, in the ways that they engage in those spheres of influence. So, so from a very early age, I recognized that my faith should have a practical application in the world in which I lived. I caught a hold of that vision for them, and I desired to live out my faith in my vocational pursuits. And so that involved going to school, uh, training to be a college professor, and then seeking to understand how I could better educate the next generation on what it means to pursue justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And, and um, as you could maybe help us understand a little bit more, had you always envisioned an academic pathway? Um, and if you know, not, what, what was on the table? Yeah, I think coming out of high school, I anticipated going into pastoral ministry or maybe nonprofit leadership. As I got to the end of my undergraduate career, I became somewhat disenchanted with what I saw to be gaps in ministerial or theological training, especially in a U.S. context. Um, in particular, I felt that many ministers were not equipped to handle um, their ministerial calling outside of the church. So when it comes to racial injustice, when it comes to economic inequality, when it comes to questions of immigration, I felt that many ministers were ill-equipped. And so what I was looking for was an occupation that allowed me to serve the church, but also have a presence in the community and also educate others so that they could pick up the mantle. And so the academy offered both the flexibility vocationally, but also the opportunity to spread my wings widely and try to have a voice in a lot of different spheres. And so I think I kind of grew into an interest in an academic profession because of its um, flexibility and versatility. Got it. And were there any um, contextual drivers for that? So were there any either experiences or influencers, mentors or others that you interacted with that actually fueled that desire to that trajectory? 
Yes. So one of my uh, dissertation committee members probably had the greatest influence on me seeing the possibilities of the um, academy. And that's one of my dissertation member committee members was uh, Dr. Cornell West, who's at Union Theological Seminary, formerly at Princeton and Harvard uh, University. Um, but Dr. West is great because he's not only a professor, but he's also spending times down in prisons in Louisiana working with incarcerated individuals to make sure that they're getting an education and they're getting justice. He's very active on the social scene when there's matters of injustice that arise within our national and even international context. And so seeing his example gave me a vision of the possibilities of the academic profession to be a force for good in society and not just an intellectual exercise in ivory towers removed from the lived experience of people in everyday life. Got it. And then um, you received your bachelor's and your master's at Bob Jones University. Can you share a little bit about why you chose Bob Jones? So what led you there? And then what your sort of experience was uh, in attending Bob Jones. Yes, yeah, so I chose Bob Jones because it was an institution with a deeply controversial racial history. Um, for those familiar with Bob Jones, they might be aware of the Supreme Court case in uh, the 1980s in which the uh, institution lost its tax-exempt um, status because of some of the racial policies that were in place at the time. It was a place that until recently, within the past decade or so, still featured um, various buildings named after members of the KKK. And so mm. there was a deeply problematic racial history that the institution boasted. For me, given my parents' upbringing and my personal passion surrounding issues of race and justice, I really wanted to understand what does it mean to be a Christian in the midst of a racially problematic society and racially problematic realities. And so what Bob Jones offered me was the chance to be around um, people who thought differently than I did in a context very differently than what I had been raised in. I grew up in the Chicagoland uh, area, Bob Jones is in South Carolina. So you have a North-South dichotomy. It was a predominantly white institution. So the Chicago area is very diverse. Um, Bob Jones was not very diverse. And so what I received at Bob Jones beyond anything that I could have ever learned in the classroom, I learned how to think with, how to understand, how to critically engage and how to love people hmm. who fundamentally who saw the world in a fundamentally different manner than I did. And so as I've had numerous opportunities to pursue racial justice within my current sphere of influence, I often look back at those years at Bob Jones as being formative and preparatory in equipping me to dialogue and engage people who held vastly different views than I did. And you dove into that work, not simply as a journey of your own, but you went on to pursue being a president of the student body, and you succeeded in that campaign. Tell us a little bit about what even inspired you to go that route and what that, uh, what that experience was as president of the student body. Yeah, so I have to give a, a shout out to one of my good uh, classmates from Bob Jones, Elliot Smith. He would probably want to take full credit for me being student body president given the ways <laughs> that he campaigned for me. But I think that opportunity to be student body president, it taught me about leadership. Um, it taught me about representing different constituencies. <laughs> and it taught me about the political dynamics of an academic institution or even a workplace in general. And so that campaign was such where I'm trying to find a pathway to winning a majority of the vote. One of the factors that my mother encouraged me to think about before I went to Bob Jones was she said, Theon, 
I want you to get in the habit of paying attention to the people who no one else is talking to. The people who are being ignored, it's being left aside in the social spheres that you're going to be operating in. She's like, they'll be your best friends. Mm. And so after a couple of years of that practice in college, what I found was that running for student body president was not a particularly difficult task because there's always going to be more unpopular people or more disenfranchised people than they're going to be popular people. And so it was a very... Um, it was a very clear campaign. Who are you trying to represent? The people who've been left aside or cast aside in the environment. And that became a really exciting um, opportunity to try to give a voice to the voiceless in a space like uh, Bob Jones University. And so that's really how I organized my campaign. At the same time, I was student body president at, at during the emergence of a, a junior senator from Chicago named Barack Obama. And so it was a very interesting time for racial politics. And so there was times where we had to talk about different racial dynamics, both at Bob Jones and the nation as a whole. Um, and so I found myself tasked with speaking into a lot of societal issues regarding race, politics, representation um, that I probably didn't anticipate when I first started to run. But I look at that time as being really formative for me in helping me understand how to move in different in a variety of different spaces as a black man in America. That's great. And then were there any highlights uh, during your presidency? I think one of the highlights in my during my presidency was the opportunity to organize a series of theologically informed events that allowed students of different stripes to come together and share their identity in Christ. We have many different factions on any college campus or in any space in general, but it was one of those events where we really pursued unity and we were able to challenge one another, but also challenge the institution on, um, on various um, points of Christian unity. I would say a second point is that I just had the opportunity to speak into the college's racial history during my time as student body president. I was able to talk with the current president and the current chancellor of the institution and saying, here are some things in your past that you all might want to think about addressing. And while they didn't necessarily address them that year, a couple years down the road, this name changes. A couple years down the road, an apology is given for this event. And so I found that that really helped me understand what does racial advocacy look like? I would go on in the future to study for my dissertation, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I found that many of my experiences in racial advocacy work at a place like Bob Jones University gave me a deeper appreciation for what him and the numerous uh, activists during the civil rights movement really were attempting to pursue um, in the 60s and 50s. Yeah, and that's a that's a great um, insertion there of uh, your work uh, with uh, you know Dr. King's life and legacy. Uh, I'm curious what led you to focus on Dr. King um, for your studies, and had you considered other leaders? What ended up you know leaning you towards Dr. King? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. The night before Dr. King died, he gave a very memorable address um, that's been titled, I've Been to the Mountaintop. And if you get to the end of that speech or that sermon, he says, I don't know what's going to happen now, speaking of the future of the civil rights movement. He says, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter now because I've been to the mountaintop. Mm. And what's fascinating about that speech is you have an individual embracing death. Like he was shot the next day for a cause that he believed in. 
when my parents first exposed me to that speech as a junior high student, it arrested my attention. Mm. I'm sitting there like, this man was willing to die for what he believed. And I, I, I had to think, what am I willing to die for? And so I wanted to understand, what is it that he saw? What is it that he understood? What is it that he believed that led him to be willing to die for the cause of racial justice? And so my dissertation was something of a labor of love. I wanted to understand this because I loved his example so much. Of course, King is just one individual in a pantheon of great leaders during the civil rights movement. But I think his, his speeches, his sermons, his rhetoric really attracted me and um, just captivated my attention. And I learned so much from really studying what was he all about? What made him tick? How did he view the world? Mm. What were his concerns? Mm. It's a fascinating point you raised there about the power of uh, the conviction around a belief and the extent to which that belief um, were willing to be committed to it. Um, in, in Dr. King's case and in many other cases to the point of death, it has been argued about our culture day and age that there, there are not too many things people are willing to die for. And when um, when you don't have something as ultimate as that, that's your purpose. Well, we find other things to mess around with that are of uh, not as much significance or the things we're passionate about are actually not, not the right things. So I want to pivot a little bit to sure. our current cultural context and ask you, what gives you on the one hand hope about our cultural context today and what gives you concern? Yeah, so I would say when we talk about hope, for me, hope is not something that I have based on what I see in society. Hope is mm -hmm. what I have based on who I see my Savior is, who Jesus Christ is. That's where my hope is. So as I look at society, as I think of war going on around the world, as I think about persistent inequalities, as I think of the tensions, the hatred that we see in our communities. Um, you know, you and I both live in the broader Chicagoland area, and even the violence that we see in Chicago, like, there's not much reason for me to have optimism about what I see that we're going to do better. But I have hope, because I know that at any moment, Jesus Christ, our Savior, can intercede and work miracles among humanity. I think one of the beauties of the Old Testament is that Israel is commanded to have hope of the Messiah's arrival, hmm. even when their reality gives them no reason to have hope. And so I think my hope in this moment is based on who God is, not what I see from us. Hmm. Hmm. In terms of my concerns in this moment, if we're going to speak in a in a U.S. or even a global context, we're losing the ability to dialogue with people with whom we disagree. A disagreement easily leads us to dehumanize others. As a rhetorical scholar, I'm very concerned about this because I think the conditions for any kind of democratic approach to governance to thrive it depends on us being able to talk with people that we disagree with. So if you and I have a disagreement and I say, oh, William's not this, or I can't be around William because I disagree with him, well, then our ability to collaborate, to deliberate, um, to find solutions is fundamentally um, affected by that. And so what happens when a society loses the ability to talk across lines of difference? What happens to our ability to solve problems, to come together, to collaborate, um, 
to prog to progress toward a common goal. And so as I see things like the January 6th insurrection, as I see things like the war in Ukraine, as I see the ways in which we see conflicts going on around the globe, uh, I'm deeply concerned about our ability to talk to one another. Mm. And if we could dig into that a little bit more, it is something that uh, I think I've been thinking about also, but certainly a topic that's not a new one in our in our sure. recent uh, cultural context. And what would you say, or what do you think about the argument that it's it's it goes beyond the ability to have constructive, uh, respectful dialogue across lines, but it actually now starts to beg the question, the foundational worldviews and starting point assumptions or presuppositions are vastly different. I mean, we're talking about uh, very different approaches to life, the world, eternity, like all these big questions. Um, it used to be there was probably more homogeneity in how, uh, whether Christian or non-Christian circles, people understood those things. So there was a starting point that provided some sort of a common plane. Well, today, that common plane in, in many ways does not really exist. Um, and so help me out here. Um, is, there, is there more to it than just people are not good at having conversations that are difficult? They're fragile. Right. No, that's a great question. I think we're kind of getting at the notion that some have called like a post-truth society. And with this idea of a post-truth society, we have no commonly agreed upon way of arriving at truth, capital T, anymore. There's a difficulty in establishing facts and even discerning between facts and opinions in our contemporary society. For me, this is not only... Uh, a byproduct of our inability to talk to one another, but it also demonstrates the significance of us learning to talk to one another. And I think it's important to push past, as you indicated, just being civil in our conversations. At some points, we might even say that civility is the problem because we need to, there's times we need to be arguing with one another. <laughs> but I think when I talk about dialogue, I'm not just saying, I hear what you say, you hear what I say. But do I actually have a commitment to understanding the world from your perspective. I mentioned earlier the benefits that I experienced going to Bob Jones University. Mm. What, ex what experience do I get when I have a roommate who has a Confederate flag? Okay, so immediately I can say, this is a person who's racist or a person who's fundamentally different than I am. I can take that position. Um, or I can take the more difficult position of trying to understand them. This is what some of the great novelists and essayists of the civil rights movement, like James Baldwin, are trying to do with white America. They're saying, yes, we can't just dismiss you as racist, William Faulkner, but we're going to take the more difficult route of trying to understand you so that even if I have to disagree with you, I can articulate your worldview in a way that you will say, yes, that is what I believe. And so I think this is what lends significance to dialogue in this moment. Are we talking with one another in a way that yields mutual understanding? Understanding does not necessarily mean that we have to agree with one another, but at least let's understand one another on our terms. What's happening so much is that someone might look at me and say, they're gonna, pro they're gonna project a set of beliefs onto me, or I'm going to project a set of beliefs onto them. But as Baldwin says, what you say about me says more about you 
than it says about me. Mm-hmm. And so what does it look like for us to say, no, I don't understand why you believe this. I don't understand why you'd go into the Capitol and start an insurrection. I don't understand why you would invade Ukraine. I don't understand this, but I want to understand it from your perspective, how you make sense of the world. If we take that step, there's hope for democracy. Hmm. So uh, maybe just to to cap that, and I have one more question um, after this, how do we develop that type of intellectual humility? Yes. We have to have the willingness to acknowledge that our view of the world is just that. Mm. It is our view of the world. We have to be exposed to the range of perspectives, to the range of ideas, um, and to the range of opinions that constitute global society. I think one of the challenges that we have in this moment, it might be a matter of humility. That's, That's possible. I think there is a dimension of humility. But I think Part of what's happening in this moment is that our core values become core elements of our identities. So for me to talk to you, William, and say, I want to understand the world from your perspective, that requires humility on my part, but it also requires me to be willing to sacrifice parts of my identity. Because you might say something today that fundamentally challenges how I view the world. That's not just humility, but it's also me being willing to alter my identity as I get new information. But I think for so many of us, we're so in love with a particular set of presuppositions, set of core assumptions that for me to even admit that you Mm -hmm. might be right on something that we disagree with is a threat to who I am. So I can't even admit the possibility that you're right because to do so is to sacrifice who I am believe myself to be. And until we're willing to embrace that humility and be willing to um, alter our identity as we gain new insights, it's hopeless. I think one of the best examples of this from the civil rights movement, this is going to be a surprise to y'all listeners out there. You want to see someone who is willing to sacrifice their identity? Look at Malcolm X. Malcolm X joins the Nation of Islam and says that all white people are devils. He gets some new information and he backs off of that. He's like, white people aren't devils. And he says famously, I hope you can forgive me for the hateful things that I said, and I'm going to forgive you for the hateful things that you said as well. But Malcolm X was so humble and so willing to change his identity that as he got new information, he was willing to evolve and continue to grow. Because, and I think this is what is important. Cornel West says this. He was more loyal, he was loyal to the truth, Mm. whether it worked for him or against him. Mm. That's what we need Mm. in this moment. People who are more loyal to the truth, whether it works for them or against them. And we pray that people even accept that there is, there is. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you one more question. You serve at Redemption Church. That's and right. So again, here you're in the public sphere, in the academy, you're in the church. What does serving at an Asian church, uh, what has that taught you about the race conversation? Yeah, so I think I'll answer that. Um, you, you might get a long form answer, but I'm going to do the best I can. Uh, <laughs> there's an assumption that the civil rights movement was only about Black people. Mm. I think that's a fundamental misconception. The civil rights movement, while it focused heavily on Black people, there was an international, internationalist focus that really drove it. They're, they're engaging with Cesar Chavez. They're concerned about poor white folks in the South. They're, they're, 
kings in Ghana when it gains its independence in 1958 there. So, I mean, there's this broad framework for what's going on beyond just Black America, which King says numerous times. I think being at the Redemption Church at a predominantly, at a pan-Asian church has pushed me to embrace an internationalist perspective. It's forced me to understand different issues facing different communities. Um, It's forced me to wrestle with complicated legacies. There's a large contingent of the population of my church that's Korean-American. Well, I'm an African-American, and there's been historical tensions between Korean-Americans and African-Americans due to a variety of factors. But as a church, we've had to work through those tensions. We've had to work through those issues, and it's allowed us to benefit from the different values, virtues, and insights that we have to bring to the communion table that we meet around. And so there's things that I've learned from the Korean American, the Chinese American, the Filipino American cultures that constitute the Redemption Church. There's things that I've been able to bring to the table coming as an African American. So I found that it's enriched me and my family Mm. as individuals, and hopefully we have enriched them. I think about what Paul said in Romans chapter one, he's so excited to get to Rome. And what does he say? I'm so excited to be strengthened by the mutual faith that we've shared together. He's Mm. like, there's a mutuality that's going to emerge from our connection. That's going to enrich in us both. And that's what has been the benefit of being at the redemption church for me. Amen. I'm just reminded of the fact that at the end of the age, when it's all said and done, every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow down and acknowledge the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That's right. So that's that's the end game. That's the end goal. Um, Dr. Hill, I tremendously appreciate your time. And I hope that our audience also would have gleaned a few things that they can put into practice that will help them in their journey to bring God's kingdom and and reconciliation and redemption uh, here on earth. So Thank you very much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brother William. It's been a blessing to be with you and your listeners. Amen.